0: Welcome to My Patriot Brain, the show that explodes your cortex with conservative values. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Mather. Today is Monday, May 1st, 2023. I'm coming to you from behind the MPS Behavioral Science Analytics microphone. Uh, I record this live, so this is live for me, but it's not necessarily live for you because you're not going to hear it live, Uh, but it's recorded live with minimal edits. I Thank you for downloading this episode. Uh, We publish twice a week, uh, every Monday and Thursday morning. We're available on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Uh, I have a true social account where I post a lot of the articles that fit with what I talk about in here. Uh, I also have a Rumble channel uh, that I'm starting to add more content to. Uh, And, of course, I've got my website, theconservativesocialpsychologist.com, where you can read my original content of free original content of blogs, uh, my old podcast show, uh, and uh, things like that. And you also get access to a lot of my, my academic published articles as well. Uh, I have a book, Implicit Biases in the Unconscious, Liberal Biases, Racial Prejudice, and Politics, which is available exclusively online at Barnes & Noble. Uh, and so I urge you to take a, check that out. You can probably pick up a used copy online, too. I'm sure a lot of people bought copies and don't want theirs, so you can look it up online, like some of my other books. Uh, anyway, so Major League Baseball division leaders today, as of this morning, May 1st. So these guys made it to May in first place. Uh, Tampa Bay is 23-5, uh, leading the American League East, one of the best starts to any baseball team in the history of professional baseball. Uh, Minnesota is leading the American League Central. Texas Rangers are leading the American League West. Atlanta Braves are 18-9, leading the National League East. Uh, Pittsburgh Pirates uh, have an outstanding 20-8 record to lead the National League Central, and they're playing really well despite some injuries. Uh, and Arizona's leading the National League West. I want to wish a happy birthday to one crazy dude, Willie Nelson. Uh, he, he was his birthday is, uh, he was born on April 29th, 1933 in Abbott, Texas, um, but he was born late at night, and the county clerk's office was closed, so the county clerk filed it April 30th, so April 30th is his official birthday, and as you would expect from Willie Nelson, he celebrates both days. Uh, I wanted to give you an update. I told you guys about the the bewitched Elizabeth Elizabeth Montgomery special that I, w- that I watched uh, last week, and I said I watched most of it, but didn't catch the last 30 minutes of it, but it was really good. Gave you insight into '60s culture and you know kind of the the social dynamics of the show, uh, the, the social implications and, and context of the show out in out in the public world. Well, the last thirty minutes is where they every documentary shoves all the you know crazy woke stuff that maybe isn't the best use of a documentary into that. Right. So the last thirty minutes, when I went back and watched the last thirty minutes, that's where they have all the politically woke LGBTQ stuff. I had no idea that Bewitched was. Yeah, I thought it was just a silly fun show that I watched on reruns when I was a kid. I hadn't realized that uh, you know, LGBTQ had claimed it as their own and, and uh, had uh, made it a, a symbol for them, uh, as had apparently the the Wiccans and everybody else. So anyway, I thought it was just a silly, funny show. I hadn't realized that there's already had been, um, you know, current culture had politically claimed it for the woke. So anyway, um, be, be ready to watch that. Watch the first two thirds of the show and then if that last 30 minutes if you just want to be if you're just curious and you want to see what kind of weird stuff happens after the show is was created and, and what social life it took on you can watch that last 30 minutes. If you want to skip it, you skip it. Um uh, I probably go back and forth as to which one I would have done, but it's not it's not politically obnoxious, um, but they always do slip stuff in and I should have known the last 30 minutes of any documentary uh, is going to have that. Uh okay, so speaking of woke and potentially unwoke Social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt posted an article on his Twitter the other day, a CNN article called the welcome pushback against campus wokeness coming from the colleges themselves by John Avalon. And I thought, Hey, this is fantastic. All these years of, of screaming about the wokeness and free speech restrictions and everything. Maybe there's finally some momentum. But when I read the article, uh, which I should have known as Jonathan Haidt referred us to that, Jonathan Haidt, he's a good guy. He's a good social scientist. I've interacted with him before. He, has been vilified for, you know, basically allowing conservatives to talk at all in academia. He's not a conservative by any means. He's a very progre- very progressive liberal. He just thinks that conservatives ought to have the ability to talk and have, you know, a very small handful of decent ideas that should be listened to. So anyway, he, uh, this article, I'll give you a quote from the article and, and tell you what I think. So here's a quote from the article. Yes, the far right. Has, so remember, this article is, is designed to tell you that uh, the campuses are are now fixing their own woke problem, the problem of all the, the woke mobs shutting down speakers and, and classrooms and everything else against conservative, you know, they're shutting it down. So the goal of this article was to point out, hey, campuses have it all in order, it's, it's getting fixed. And I was watching the reaction to Jonathan Haidt by other scientists, and they're all saying, yay, see, we knew this wasn't a problem, and now what little problem it was is being fixed. Here's a, a quote from the article. Again, not John he- Jonathan Haidt's article, but John Avalon's article that John Height had posted on his Jonathan Height had posted on his uh, Twitter. Here's the quote: "Yes, the far right has pumped up woke panic into a cottage industry, perfect for fear mongering, fundraising, and playing to, to the base. But it's a mistake to dismiss this and call it all a phantom menace. So their perspective here is: uh, is so even though the Republicans and the and the conservatives are going to to make up all these problems." Uh, there is a real problem in here somewhere. You just have to sort it out from all the Republican BS. So right there, you can see that I'm not a big fan of the perspective of this article. And it goes to show you that anybody that's even remotely supportive of free speech in academia is suddenly branded some kind of far-right extremist. Uh, And there aren't any, there are very, very few real conservatives, like actual what I would consider to be a conservative in academia. Uh, What usually passes for far-right extremist is a very moderate libertarian with progressive tendencies for the most part, such as Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he cites uh, Steven Pinker's research uh, and some of the FIRE research, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expressions, which uh, looks at free speech really and tries to protect free speech. Um, he really cited their data on you know all the examples, not necessarily examples, but case studies and incidences and and you know documented instances and numbers that go along with that too um, of People being denied tenure or being, um, you know, protesters having to lose their jobs, that kind of stuff in in the faculty ranks. What I would say is that this is all data on older data, because a lot of it was from 2014, but older data on liberals eating their own in the ivory tower is what I would call it that. He doesn't call it that. I would call this, instead of him calling it data on um, the problem, I would call it data on liberals eating their own in the ivory tower, because most of the time, the people that they're protesting were liberals who did something, not conservatives. Uh, because there aren't conservatives in academia, and so they don't get sh- conservatives don't get kicked out of academia. It's always liberals protesting other liberals for not being liberal and progressive enough on some stupid thing. That's why they think there's a problem. Uh, but examples they gave, you know, Cornell shut down student government. The student government at Cornell had voted to have trigger warnings on all syllabi with anything remotely, you know, triggering. Uh, and uh, Cornell president came out and said, no, you're not doing that because in the real world, you don't get trigger warnings. I don't consider that necessarily uh, campuses becoming unwoke uh, at all. I don't. Uh, that's just that's just barely even the threshold over the threshold of common sense uh, to not have those trigger warnings. But anyway, that's what they see as evidence that the campuses are becoming unwoke and they're fixing their own problems. Uh, another example was Stanford's law dean. Um, so Stanford had that incident I covered on this this podcast where uh, their uh, one of their law deans or one of their deans I think it was at the law school. Uh, came out and essentially led a mob uh, attacking a judge that was there giving a speech and not letting him speech. And so it was an associate dean, I think, that, gave that led the charge of that protest. And then another law dean um, wrote a letter afterwards and, and said that that was inconsistent with free speech. That's another example of the campus becoming unwoke in their minds, was a liberal law dean telling another liberal law dean that when they had shut down a conservative speaker, that wasn't cool. I don't consider that becoming unwoke. Uh, another example they gave—they had to go outside of academia to get these—and say, "Oh, these are general trends in in, in the world becoming unwoke." Uh, Netflix keeping Dave Chappelle after his special, which was freaking hilarious, by the way. Uh, and then uh, Bill Maher's Cajones Awards. These are examples of the of the world becoming unwoke. These are just examples of tiny, tiny bits of pushback against the woke, you know, insanity. Uh, these are not the world becoming less woke or, or campuses becoming unwoke, or anything like that. If you step on those campuses, as we'll see and when we get to the, the Patriot brain line, there are still plenty of opportunities for you to see just how off the rails, crazy woke campuses are. Uh, here's another quote from his article. While the right's response to woke panic is often to fan the flames, the center left has a special responsibility to step up when progressive groupthink rears its head. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, and, and non-binary, non-binary folks, you can sit this one out. But, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that the the center left has a special responsibility to step up when progressive groupthink rears its head. Is not going to be the savior for all of this, right? I regret to inform you that we will not be saved by the center left. So, if you think the center left is going to save us, you are severely mistaken because the center left is center wrong, and they're not going to save anything at all. But that's the perspective of this author: is that well, I'm a moderate liberal, and so all the crazy Republicans and the crazy conservatives have it all wrong, but I will save us all from them. But it's not going to be the extreme left because they're too extreme. And the answer to this is just that's complete BS. I have to watch what I say because otherwise I have to click an extra button and, and label this as explicit. And then my podcast gets like, you know, filed away somewhere else. So I've got to watch what I say. But anyway, that was interesting. Uh, I thought that the the left in the ivory tower thinks they've got it all under control now. I don't think they do. Uh, Jordan Peterson. I got, I got a picture from a co-author about uh, Jordan P- Jordan Peterson getting a uh, receiving a copy of a book that my co-author and I uh, authored a chapter in, uh, which is cool to a lot of people I know. A lot of people I know really like Jordan Peterson. Uh, I am I'm not a fan of his, and I'm not a fan of his. Whatever the opposite of being a fan would be, like I don't I don't dislike the guy. I don't hate the guy. I have no problems with the guy. I'm, I'm glad he's out there. I'm glad he's doing his thing. Um, to me, he's just another psychologist that, in, in his case, he has, you know, some grasp of reality. Um, he's more like a, a peer or a colleague, uh, and I respect his work and I respect what he goes out doing. And uh, I don't consider him a conservative at all, um, but I, I do appreciate what he does out there and the fact that he brings some palatability to some of the general conservative ideas that are out there. Um, but I know that it means a lot to other people to see that he's got you know something with my my print in it, but. I couldn't help but notice and think about that picture, what it implies to me, which is that Jordan Peterson reads my stuff. But I don't read his stuff. So I think that tells you a little bit more about um, my perspective on Jordan Peterson than, than anything else. I uh, was catching a little segment of the Joe Pag show on Thursday or Friday. I can't remember which day it was. Uh, probably Thursday because it was probably right after i had recorded the show uh, earlier in the day. And talking about, you know, the Biden administration getting questions and how carefully worded everything was that said oh the LA times did not submit a question and they did not submit a question for joe biden well but of course but the biden administration gave the question to the LA times and there was a caller i was thinking this through the joe pag show and they weren't figured they hadn't figured this out yet and it was all pretty fresh that i'm sure people have figured this out since then and a caller called in and gave exactly the perspective i was thinking which was didn't the Biden administration probably give the LA Times a question. All of these press releases are carefully worded to say that the LA Times did not give a question to the Biden administration. The Biden administration did not take the LA Times question and give it to Joe Biden. But if it goes the opposite direction, all that wording works perfectly. They're just so slimy, the Biden administration. They're just so sleazy and slimy, and they're just just terrible people. And it's just a sad state of affairs that they have any power at all. And, uh, you know, Pray for this country over these next few years because it's going to be, it's a pretty ugly scenario. Speaking of ugly scenarios, right? So they still haven't found the Supreme Court leak for the uh, abortion ruling that was going to come out that, of course, the leak affected the election and liberals love to leak and to not hold anybody accountable. Uh, liberals and progressive don't follow rules. That's their whole thing. They don't follow rules. They don't respect rules. And they try to use that against conservatives and Republicans, which is why we have to fight back and we have to use. Things like banning people from committees in the House, uh, whenever just whenever we want to, right? Like, I don't think that uh, AOC or you know Elon Omar or any of them should be on a committee at all. I mean, we should just say no. You're not. You don't get to play with us anymore because you've been a com- you've been complete jerks to us all along. Nancy Pelosi should never get to vote on anything ever again, in my opinion. Um, and we should be using the rules to our benefit uh, in the same way that they use rules to their benefit, and they don't respect anything. And they try to turn around and say, oh, Republicans don't respect decorum because they know that that's our thing. They try to use our rules against us. And we've got to just, you know, it's, it's salt the earth time is what it is. Uh, but it is interesting that uh, there have been no leaks on the Epstein list. So you can only kind of infer that the Epstein list must all be Democrats because if there were even any Republicans on that list, they would have leaked the Republican names. Uh, but they don't want to get into what what's on the the Jeffrey Epstein list of the people that visit his island and did all the the uh, crazy things that they did um, all of his clients they don't they don't want that list out there uh, a lot of times in culture we keep talking about uh, you know all the gender stuff which is now in your face uh, the woke stuff but there has for a long time there's been like gender issue things that come to the uh, that are in culture right like I remember, like the Rocky horror picture show. I remember like boy George was something I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't supposed to watch him at all. And if he was on anything at all, a word show or anything as a kid, I wasn't supposed to watch him. Uh, remember the song Lola, uh, you know, Tom Hanks and bosom buddies. Uh, and Peter Sklari was in Bo- bosom buddies too, right? They dressed up as, as women so they could live in the women's place in the women's apartment complex. Um, you know, Jack lemon and Tony Curtis and some like it hot. Like these are all things that go back a long way. Julie Andrews playing Peter Pan. Uh, and then, of course, B. Arthur in the Golden Girls, which is just kind of a joke. Um, rem- think about how far we've we've come as far as like protests from Hollywood, and ho- and I know I gave that talk about people that dislike Hollywood, uh, and the the research behind it. Remember the Dixie Chicks, which are now the Chicks because they wanted to drop the Dixie part, but maybe they should have dropped the Chicks part. Uh, Two thousand three in London. When they had that, when they didn't, when they said they didn't endorse the Iraq War, and they were ashamed of George W. Bush being from Texas, and that got boycotts and all kinds of backlash, and that just seemed like this crazy time uh, for the Dixie or country music band to say something like that. And now, like, they wouldn't get any attention for that. Right? They would get no attention for saying they didn't endorse the the Iraq War and they were ashamed of the president being from from Texas. They would get no attention for that because everybody's saying that. So that's how far we've come in, since two thousand three. Uh, With the fear of, you know, what Republicans might do to boycott something, there's just no fear of that. The Democrats and progressives have no fear about anything right now, and that's a dangerous time for us. Well, almost no fear about anything. So I was uh, driving the other day, and there was this car. It was Saturday morning, taking my son to his baseball baseball game. Hardly any cars on the road, but there's one car in my way, and I am just like, get out of my way. I know it's Saturday morning, but seriously, like, drive better, drive faster it's 45 mile an hour speed limit you're driving 28 miles an hour get out of my way and as i finally got to pull around the side of them like i see it's it's a lady with like giant sunglasses and a mask on driving by herself and i I turned to my son and i said unless she stole that car from somebody then there's like not any reason for her to be wearing a mask at all i said i just don't get that but i should have expected that when i saw her driving super slow weaving around she's she's blind and she's covered all of her oxygen intake too and then, you know, so you're still seeing people that wear masks by themselves, which I don't see why anybody's wearing a mask. You know, there's pretty rare cases where you probably ought to wear a mask at any point now. If you're super vulnerable and you're in some kind of crazy place, I guess, maybe. Uh, but whatever. I don't really care as long as nobody's making me wear a mask. Uh, that's the main thing. If you want to wear a mask, that's fine. But I just don't get it driving down the road by yourself why you'd wear a mask in a car of your on your own. So, OK, so maybe you're in a, a rental car, I guess. No, I'm trying to figure this out. I can't come up with good reason. Maybe you're in a rental car or you stole uh, that little old lady stole a car from somebody else that had a bunch of COVID uh, or I don't know. Anyway. Okay. So that gets shot down because the other day I was driving and this like motorcycle pulls out in front of me and it's like 85 degrees and it's sunshine and it's just burning up. And it's this Asian dude in a trench coat. First of all, like he's super all black trench coat, everything super hot, like super hot temperature. And you're wearing a trench coat. The dude wasn't super hot. I have no, I'm not weighing in on that. And then he had a, They had a mask on, on a motorcycle, like a little, like, it wasn't even like a real motorcycle. It was like the, the kind of motorcycle you would expect a guy in this situation to be driving. And he's just flying down the road with his like his little mask on, not like a mask, like a, he's got some kind of motorcycle helmet with a visor on. We're talking like a COVID mask that he's wearing, but it's not, it's not like a, you know, it's, it's a cloth one. It's not even a. I don't. I don't get it. It was it was quite a sight to see that. And I'm like, he's in, he's by himself. There's no one else on the road anywhere. He's in an open air motorcycle, and he's already wearing a trench coat. But it's open, so if he crashes, he's gonna like skin up the front half of his body because he's not he's not protected there. So the trench coat is just kind of hot. I I don't, I don't know. People are people are freaking weird. That's all I've got to say. So which leads me to our discussion about psychopaths today. And so we're going to talk about psychopaths and well-being. So there, there's a new study out called The Relationship Between Psychopathic Personality, Well-Being, and Adaptive Traits in Undergraduates by Durand and Lobestale. I think I'm getting that right. In 2023, Personality and Individual Differences, volume 2004. Uh, they surveyed 2009 Canadian university students 84% female. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and assume that the other percentage of it were male uh so, because in science that's always how things have been reported you just report like the percentage of females and then it was inferred you could figure out the percentage of males and i assume that trend's going to go away in the, in the writing pretty soon uh, but so far you can still publish it that way uh and so they had people do self report uh, measures of adaptive traits psychopathic traits and well-being and then they were correlating those things together so they found that high levels of psychopathic traits uh you know, people that had high levels of psychopathic traits agreed with statements like feeling sorry for others is a sign of weakness. And sometimes I lie simply because I enjoy it. And when I'm upset, I often act without thinking. So people with high levels of psychopathic traits uh, made agreed with statements like that. People with high levels of adaptive psychopathic traits agreed with statements like, so th- these were statements that were diagnostic and would basically tell you uh, these are people that have high you know, adaptive psychopathy. They would agree with statements like, people often follow my lead, I rarely worry, and I can effortlessly mingle with any group. So those are the answers to those questions, you know, determine really whether or not you have adaptive psychopathy. If, you, if, you, if you're psychopathic, but you don't answer, you know, with, high, with a agreement to those last statements, like people often follow my lead, I rarely worry, I can effortlessly mingle with any group, then you're just kind of a run-of-the-mill regular psychopath who's a little bit more dangerous. Males have a higher. They found that males have a higher proportion of psychopathic traits, which is consistent with past research. So you tend to find, um, you know, in psychopaths you tend to find more males than females. Uh, Found that individuals with high levels of adaptive psychopathic traits had high levels of well-being. So they had what you know more durable happiness, more satisfaction with life, and higher self-esteem. So that's important because those high levels of adaptive psychopathic traits made a difference between the well-being of a psychopath or a psychopath who's happier and better adjusted. Most people in their study had moderate psychopathic and and moderate adaptive psychopathic traits. And so, you know, those who were high on, had both of those. Um, So this makes sense because the ones that, that were, you know, the people that were, that had the high psychopathy in this sample, Um, We're obviously functioning well enough to be in college, so they're not just like you're going to a prison and getting a sample of psychopathic individuals. You're you're looking at a college, so they're functioning well enough, so it makes sense that they would have high levels of both, right? They would have high levels of psychopathy and high levels of adaptive traits, of adaptive psychopathy, because those are going to be the ones that were functioning well and better adjusted and able to navigate their way through college Uh, if you don't have those high adaptive uh, psychopathy psychopathic traits, then you don't have the happiness, et cetera. And you're not able to function as well, and you end up doing stuff that gets you in jail. People with lower levels of adaptive traits had lower levels of well-being regardless of their psychopathic traits. So those adaptive traits are adaptive whether you're or not you're a psychopath. Overall this suggests that the lower levels of, of well-being in psychopaths is due to the adaptive traits. So the difference between being a, a good psychopath and a bad psychopath may very well may, may be your adaptive traits, which leads to your happiness. Uh, Now to the Patriot Brain Line. Listener T. and Edmund said there's an article about OU paying a drag queen $18,000. It's so woke. And so the article that T. sent me is, as OU pays drag queen $18,000, lawmakers call for defunding. April 26, 2023 by Ray Carter in the OCPA, which is the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. So in this article, Ray Carter, I'm a big fan of Ray Carter's work. Ray Carter writes a lot of these things. He... uh, he, he's done a lot of articles I've, I, that I've covered on this show, so I'm a big fan of his work. I think he's a good writer. I think he does a lot of really good things. He pointed out that the OU president makes one thousand three hundred sixty-nine dollars per day, and Yvie Oddly, who is the drag queen that was paid to come in, is paid what got paid eighteen thousand dollars for appearing at the Crimson and Queens drag show, which is more than the OU president, also more than head coach, uh, head football coach Brent Venables. And that was a cute way to set up the article. Uh, you know, as somebody who's done keynote speeches for large chunks of money. Uh, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. So it's not necessarily like you just got paid for that hour that you performed, or you just got paid for that two hours that you did something, or you just got paid for even that day where you were being paraded around and meeting people and and gave your speech, et cetera. You got paid for a lot of prep work that went into it that took months before you got to that point. So the, the $18,000 fee is honestly not crazy by fee standards. Um, but when you, when you uh, are attaching it to somebody like this individual, who's a drag queen uh, and you know, parker also pointed out all the vulgar things that were that the drag queen has said on twitter um, parker kind of blocked them out and censored them a little bit but you could get the gist of it uh, i'm not going to read any of those i'm just going to tell you like this person puts a lot of really vulgar things on their twitter and this is who the university of oklahoma thought it was okay to allow the students to bring in and pay a bunch of money to OU said that it paid its money by from its mandatory from its fees student fees which are mandatory Uh, but they didn't pay for them from tuition that anybody's paying or from any taxpayer state funds, uh, which is obviously a pretty weak argument that they're making, especially when they uh, charge these mandatory fees. And then, um, you know, students get to have say over them, which I understand, but there's got to be a line at some point that you're drawing. Um, Interesting. That's, you know, remember the very, I launched this episode with Uh, you know, academics saying that there are not problems in academia with wokeness, it's all getting fixed. And then here's a pretty good story that shows you that's not the case. Listener Chris in South Oklahoma City. Uh, What are your thoughts about consent versus informed consent as an experimental psychologist? How informed does someone have to be in order to, to be consenting? What about deception studies? Don't those by definition remove the informed part of informed consent? So informed consent is the idea that a person, a participant, has to know what they're getting into in research. Right? You can expand it, you know, beyond that to other legal documents, but I'm going to stick to the confines of, of social re, social science research, behavioral science research. So someone has to know what they're getting into if they're going to do the study. So, you know, if you're going to be part of an experimental trial of of a medicine, then you should know what the possible side effects are of the medicine, what the, you know, what could happen if if it goes wrong, what could happen if it goes right. You should know everything before you uh, of sound mind and body make an agreement to participate in the study. And this came out of, you know, the ethical principles from the Belmont report uh, back in the 1970s after there had been lots of abuses in research, um, which I've covered in MKUltra and I've covered in a lot of other areas. Uh, But the three ethical principles that came out of that were respect for persons, which are where you have to treat individuals as autonomous agents, independent agents, and you have to protect persons with diminished autonomy. Um, The second ethical principle is beneficence and think like benefit. So beneficence is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, And there's a trade-off here between individual benefits and societal benefits, which have to be navigated by, as we've discussed, you've got ethical review boards called institutional review boards that help balance these things out and put protections in place for the participants. And then you've got the third ethical principle is justice, which is to distribute, distribute the risks and potential benefits of research equally among those who may benefit from the research, which is exactly why if you consider the COVID rollout a clinical trial, um, then you know, there were benefits, right? If it, if it works, then that's incredibly important. If it doesn't work, then there are side effects to it, which we've seen. We've seen lots of problems with it. But it was untru- untested when the COVID vaccine was rolled out. And remember, the Biden administration said, we're going to give it to um, people of color and uh, the poor first to try to, for, as far as, because it's a social justice issue, getting this to these people, and then we're going to give them to other people. Well, there's two ways you can look at that, right? One way is you can look at that is if it works, then that's unfair because you're not giving everybody a chance to have it. If it doesn't work, that's unfair because you're doing something terrible to these groups that are getting it. So the whole point of, of justice here uh, as an ethical principle for research is that it has to be distributed fairly. Everybody has to get a shot at the cure or the risks. But you can't just say, oh, well, you know what? They're privates in the army, so we're going to bring them in for research, and we're going to do it on them first because they're expendable to us. Or you can't say, like in the Tuskegee syphilis studies, that we're just going to go to poor black communities and do this. And then there'll be a control group where people have syphilis, and uh, we just watch them over the course of their life with their fake treatments we've given them and see how syphilis demolishes their life. Uh, you can't do that stuff. The, the costs and benefits have to be equally distributed among people who can benefit from it, uh, et cetera. You can't just go into a prison and say, we're going to use these people to experiment on. Again, not, not part of the, the ethical part of that. So within conformed consent, a person has to know what they're getting into uh, when they sign on to the study. And, and if you consider, if you think about the COVID vaccine rollout that was untested, if you think about that in terms of, this is just one giant clinical trial. Uh, then you see some major, major problems with how they rolled that out. Um, but informed consent, you have to know what you're getting into, the costs and the benefits of it um, before you sign on to doing it. Uh, and so a follow-up question to this, and I didn't read this part of the question, but they they, they brought up a follow-up question about minors or people with diminished capacity. And they didn't, uh, Chris in South Oklahoma City didn't, didn't quite say it that way. So you're going to have to have somebody else that provides that consent. And we're talking about in research terms, and somebody who's under 18 is considered a child uh, and is unable to give consent, uh, despite, regardless of really what state you're in, the standard is to pretty much say under 18 covers everybody federally uh, for that. So under 18, you'd have to get your parents to sign off and say, but you would also have to give your assent saying, if you're, let's say you're a 17-year-old about to be in a, in a research study. You have to give your assent, which is you saying, hey, I understand this stuff, and and I understand the risks and costs and benefits, and and I still want to do it. But then the real thing that comes after that is the parental consent, where they say we understand the costs, the benefits, the risks of all of this, and we are okay with this person, with our child being in the study. But you've got to have both, right? Uh, I'm guessing that where Chris from South Oklahoma City was going was not confined to um, behavioral science research. I'm guessing that was also going to you know medical consent for procedures and things like that. Um, the principles are the same. Uh, the legal principles are the same. these are not it's not like ethics that only apply to research these reply these apply to everything. And so if you're talking about like kids getting you know puberty blockers and you know sex changes and things like that uh, and the parents consent to it uh, and the kids even if they were to give a cent, they can't give a cent if they're that of that young age. If you're six years old, you can't necessarily give a cent for some procedure like that because you couldn't understand it, which is the whole point of that. And the parents apparently don't either. There's things that just shouldn't happen, right? There's things that shouldn't happen. And when you get into the sex change stuff for children, um, none of those things should happen. And I know you didn't ask that. So maybe you didn't want that answer, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that anything sex change related uh, for children is just flat out wrong. Uh, and I don't mean morally, just morally wrong. I mean, morally wrong. It's child abuse. Uh, people should be brought up for charges on that. Uh, like, this is just terrible. It's awful. Uh, so I gave you an answer to a question that you asked, and I gave you an answer to a question that you may or may not have asked to Chris in South Oklahoma City. Uh, to end the show on a happier note, uh, listener David and Edmund uh, brought me, sent me an article on a, uh, called Holy Evidence, New Scientific Findings Point to the Authenticity of the Shroud of Turin as Jesus's burial shroud. Uh, it was a Newsmax magazine. Uh, I watched a segment on it because Newsmax covers a lot of their, their magazine articles. Uh, they do a, a segment on it usually, which promotes their magazine. Uh, and um, basically they found that the, the shroud of Turin was something that supposedly um, Jesus Christ was buried in after he was crucified. And a, a study had that had been done, I guess it was done back in the seventies. I, I didn't get to catch all of the segment and this Particular detail wasn't in this article that was given to me, but it is in the magazine article if you want to get the Newsmax article or magazine to get the article. Um, but I think it was back in the 1970s when they had examined the Shroud of Turin and determined that it was, you know, based on carbon dating, that it was not um, from the era. It was several hundred years more recent, so it wasn't from the era of, of Jesus Christ. But new X ray dating techniques have shown that it was uh, and debunked the old carbon dating uh, that had supposedly debunked the Shroud making the shroud back in play as potentially uh, the shroud. Uh, they had a botanist that found that the pollen that was on the shroud was connected to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they did a number of other very high tech techniques that found that the, it was consistent with the traditional burial of a, a man who had been crucified in the way that Romans crucified people during Jesus' time. So there was suddenly, now there's with new techniques, there's a lot of evidence to show that this very well could have been Jesus's burial shroud, which is incredible doesn't affect my faith. Just like if you don't find Noah's Ark, it doesn't affect my faith uh, in, in Jesus Christ and, and in God as, as a Christian. Uh, the shroud, same thing. If it's, if it's shown to be Jesus's, that's great because I believe that he existed and I believe that he saved us. Uh, if it's shown not to be, that really has no bearing on my faith because it's faith, right? It's exactly that. So finding that it's not the shroud doesn't make any difference. But it is exciting at the idea that this very well could be the shroud that Jesus Christ was buried in. If you want to contact me on the Patriot Brain line, voice message me through Spotify for Podcasters, message me through True Social, or email me at the email address listed on my website, Psychologist.com. Independent podcasts thrive with private investments that offset the time and financial costs of equipment, software, writing, producing, editing, and on-air talent. Please consider supporting my Patriot Brain with a small monthly donation. You can use the support button on the Spotify for Podcasters page or the support this podcast URL in the show description on your other listing platforms. Thank you for listening. We are strong together, and remember, I'm running live, so it may sound like these are all pre-recorded segments, but they are not. I'm running live, so now I'm going to go to my closing thoughts. Psychopathy is fascinating. The, re- the concept regularly finds its way into crime shows and popular culture. But forensic psychologists study the science of psychopathy and regularly argue over the nuances of different conceptual models. The Dark Triad, snakes and suits, these mark an important consilience of personality, social, and clinical psychology in the behavioral and brain sciences as well as criminology and social sociology and the social sciences. Given the current state of politics and culture, it is easy to forget that good science is being conducted that creates a useful understanding that advances incrementally. Our society's interests in understanding these concepts are important to remember as we support such research. Till I catch you next time, play hard and have fun. Listen to My Patriot Brain on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Follow me on True Social and Rumble. Check out my other content at theconservativesocialpsychologist.com.